0: Recently, I did a podcast with Dr. Sven Erstring talking about where did the universe come from? It was a great discussion, an eye-opening discussion. Well, this week, I'm talking to Dr. John Ashton, who has spent decades in his science work looking to answer a basic but important question. Is it possible, as is commonly believed, that life can be formed from non-living organisms?
1: Welcome to Science of the Times Radio.
0: Well, it's great to have with me this week on Science of the Times Radio, Dr. John Ashton. Dr. John, how are you?
1: Oh, well, thanks, Daniel.
0: Now, Dr. John, you are a scientist, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, I'm a professional scientist.
0: Tell tell us about your science background. What, what do you do for work? What, where did you study? That sort of thing.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, I started my career as a cadet physicist at the BHP Central Research Laboratories, which were in Newcastle back in the early 60s. And I studied pure and applied mathematics, physics, chemistry, and geology, and then I changed and specialised in chemistry and uh, I topped chemistry at the University of Newcastle both in my degree year and also in my honours year and won the CSR Chemicals Prize and then the following year I won the Toxide Research Fellowship to do a PhD and that was the highest paying chemistry research scholarship offered in Australia at the time. Following my work there, I and that was at the University of Newcastle, because of, at that time they had a world-leading chemist there, Professor Harry Bloom, and so that's why they, the scholarship was there. Then I took up a position lecturing in mathematics and physics at the Hobart Technical College back in the days when they used to offer the engineering diploma courses and lectured to engineers in, in those subjects. But I was then asked to set up the chemistry technician courses and the medical laboratory technology courses for technical and further education in Tasmania. And I worked there at, for 14 years there. And then in 1988, I took up the position as the chief chemist at the Sanitarium Research Laboratories. And and then in 2000, I moved into a different position as strategic research manager for the Sanitarium uh, Health Food Company. Hmm. Wow, that is... So that's my, that's my science background. So I'm an elected fellow of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute and an elected fellow of the um, Australian Institute for Food Science and Technology.
0: Hmm. That is quite a storied career. Now, the Hmm. interesting thing there, John, is that because you're part of the science community, this month in Signs of the Times magazine, you seek to answer the question, where did life come from? Now, you seem to take a bit of a different approach at this than most of, potentially, a lot of your peers in the scientific community would. Is that a fair assumption?
1: Well, I'm a a creationist, so I believe that the evidence is overwhelming in support of creation. And I, you know, support and agree with some other chemists like James Tour, who say that, you know, generally speaking, most uh, scientists don't have a clue on how life began and that is because they don't really understand the complexity of the chemistry that is involved and would be required for life to form from uh, non-living molecules or chemicals and i think biologists have even less of an understanding of, of these areas so the most highly qualified people to speak in this area are of course chemists and because you know to set up a a a primitive life system from raw materials requires chemical reactions to build the required compounds. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that's something we're going to go into in just a moment. But just so that we know where you've come from as far as this topic and your, your research in this area, can you tell us about your personal interest in answering this question? Have you sort of assessed for yourself critically the various hypotheses for how life started? What's your sort of story there?
1: Yeah, certainly so i was raised in a nominally christian family we ticked the methodist box and we but we didn't go to church and when i finished my studies at the university of newcastle i'd been working with some top scientists from around the world i worked in the same department as scientists who had studied at massachusetts institute technology University of Cambridge, University of Oxford, and the California Institute of Technology. So these were scientists from the top universities in the world in the area of science. And I saw that uh, their, their lifestyle was was not really inspiring a lot of them smoked heavily a lot of them drank heavily my my boss who had as i said had studied at uh, london imperial college and originally at the university of adelaide where he'd been a university medalist there in the area of chemical engineering he was actually an evangelical christian and he used to talk to me about his faith in god he loaned me the book near christianity which i read and uh, very interestingly he he talked about how when he was at university, he would never study on Sunday. He he kept the commandment to, to uh, keep a day of rest. And I later, many years later, of course, found out that he was also a creationist, but I didn't know that at the time. But his life was very different to that the other scientists. When I finished junior, I remember talking to my mum, who'd been confirmed in the Church of England as a teenager, yeah, you know, how how do you know if there's a god and she said "Well, you go to church and i so i decided to get up courage and went to the little methodist church that was just around the corner actually from where we lived and i remember going one sunday evening or the sunday evening to the service and the preacher the minister there spoke on our need to accept jesus as our savior and that we're all we'd all done wrong things and we needed to have God's forgiveness for that. And I I knew that was me. I knew I was, you know, I fitted into that category. But he asked for people to come forward who wanted to accept Jesus. And I didn't know I knew that I that was something I needed to do, but I didn't know what it really meant. And no one went forward. And when I went home I, I asked my mum, you know, how how can I learn about what the Bible says? And she said to me, well, why don't you go up to the Seventh-day Adventist Church? They have a Bible study on a Saturday morning. And the reason that she said this was that about nine years earlier, back in 1961, when just before I turned 14, my dad died suddenly from an unexpected heart attack. And we had no family living nearby. And... You know, suddenly this was a time of great distress. We needed extra financial support at the time till dad's will came through and so forth. Because virtually all the money was in dad's bank account, not in mum's, and which she couldn't touch back in those days. And this uh, Seven day Adventist family found out that this young family had suddenly lost their dad and they came around, and they showed us much kindness. And my mother went to church a couple of times. And so I rang the family up. And asked if I could come to church with them, and I did a few times. And just at that time, the Tarkside Research Fellowship was advertised for a doctorate to do a doctorate at the University of Tasmania. And as I mentioned in the introduction, that was the highest-paying chemistry scholarship in Australia. Offered paid a lot more than the Commonwealth Scholarship, and that would be that was would be a big help if I got that because I was helping support my widow mother and a younger brother and so i prayed my first prayer and i prayed god if i can win that scholarship i'll buy a bible and start keeping sabbath and go to church and well i won that scholarship and when i went to tasmania the fir- next day after arriving i went into a bookshop and bought a bible and the next saturday i went to church
0: that's an incredible story to hear your journey up until that point But how did the church members feel about your science degree that you were studying, particularly coming from a creation background?
1: When church members found out that I was, you know, studying for a doctorate in chemistry, they asked me, well, what do you think about evolution? And what about radiometric dating and the age of the earth? At that time, there was a professor at the University of Utah who was looking into radiometric dating and the errors and some of the major problems with the radiometric dating method. He was a professor of metallurgy. And so that started my interest in creation. And so that would have been in, well, I was baptised in 1971. So from that time on, I've been following this area. Now, it's interesting, while I was studying at the University of Tasmania, a friend was doing his doctorate in the area of geochemistry. And he was studying a, an old gold, the geochemistry of an old gold field in New Zealand. And as part of his studies, he'd uncovered a, uh, a pick handle or a shovel handle on the old workings that was partly petrified. That is, the, the wood had been filled with minerals and turned into stone and part was still wood. And so he sent sections of the wood part to the New Zealand government laboratories for radiometric dating. And I still remember him showing me the report. The date came back that the wood was dated as 6,600 years. And I remember we discussed among ourselves how can this shovel handle be made out of timber that? Was that old? You know, if it was made out of an oak tree, you know, this is the workings were worked there in the eighteen hundreds. You know, how old would the oak tree have been, and all this sort of thing. And again, this I guess catalyzed further my investigation into the areas of of radiometric dating and, of course, ever evolution. Interestingly, several years later, that young man joined the Seventh Day Adventist Church as well. It's been a while that I've been, I suppose if we go back then, it's essentially 50 years I've been researching in this area.
0: But the interesting thing, Dr. John, is that evolution, correct me if I'm wrong at any point here, evolution generally stems from the writing of Charles Darwin, the book The Origin of Species in 1859, right? But that book doesn't exactly address how life started. So the the book that pretty much started the evolution theory doesn't specifically address...
1: The origin of life. No, that's true, because Darwin uses the phrase that the first organism into which life was first breathed, something like that. So he didn't deal with the issue of a biogenesis or the origin of, of life, of the first life. And his theory simply proposed that once there was life, that there were mutations occurred and that life that had mutations that better fitted it to survive, did survive to breed and therefore, you know, continued on and that there were were changes. Mm. But of course, back then they had no knowledge of the DNA code or some of the molecular machines that are in living organisms. They didn't understand the limitations of mutations and... So, really, the the theory was based on very limited knowledge of the mechanisms of chemistry at that time.
0: Right. So, just explain to us what are the predominant theories for, what was the starting point for life? Because from my research, I've come across four, which include, as you described, your perspective on creation. So, can you just explain what those four theories for? Well, maybe you
1: could tell me about the, the four ones that you've seen uh, scene listed just so that we, you know, are talking about the same thing and then I can expand on those. So what are the different ones that you've read up on?
0: Actually it's interesting because there's there's two that are quite similar, which is where that life came from inorganic matter and that's the sort of the predominant sort of one from that. All oh, right. Side of the-
1: yeah. So from a from a, a little pond somewhere, or a vol- near a volcanic vent in the ocean, this sort these sort of scenarios. Is that what you're talking That's about? That's
0: right. And then there's the there's obviously the hypothesis that life came about through a creator, which is the, it sounds like the perspective that you believe in. And then mm. there is also a, a hypothesis that life came about when a spore arrived on Earth,
1: but the spore came from space. Oh yeah, sure. Hmm. Yeah, sure. And we can deal with those. Well, I mean, if we deal with the last one first, we believe that the laws of chemistry and physics operate uniformly throughout the universe. So, in, in other words, the, you know, the law of gravity applies throughout the universe. And we believe that, you know, hydrogen and oxygen will react to form water you know atmospheric pressure and particular temperature range no matter where it was in the universe these sort of things so we believe that the the chemistry that we observe here would apply anywhere in the universe now if that is the case if that assumption is correct then the problem of life arising anywhere in the universe is the same issue of life arising here Mm. and We know from the chemistry that it's absolutely impossible to arise and you know, even with ideal circumstances here. So coming life coming from somewhere else in else in the universe doesn't really solve the problem.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's an explanation for how it could have ended up on Earth, but then the same question can be posed well if there was a spore a living organism spore that came from outer space well what, how did that spore How did that spore start yeah, yeah, exactly like mm. and it's really interesting because you mention in your article that for the first living cell to come into being there needs to be a specific set of circumstances right can you can you just unpack what those set of circumstances are
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, well, maybe we can go uh, back a little bit to some of the other theories. There's general theories that the first life arose in some sort of pond, but there's a major problem with that in that some of the chemical reactions that are required, particularly to form long chain molecules and so forth of a type that would generally be broken down in water. In other words, water is a byproduct. So the Le Chatelier principle would drive the reaction the other way in excess water. So that's a major problem for those theories. There's also the problem of structure, of assembling a particular molecules so that they can then form some sort of structure. And Scientists have tried to propose, well maybe the potential reactants could be absorbed onto the surface of clay particles and so clay is mineral, it's inert, it's not alive and these particles would be in existence presumably.
0: Have scientists ever found tangible evidence to
1: support these theories? Perhaps um, some theories look at life originating near some sort of high temperature vent because they have found bacteria that can survive some high temperatures. And so they feel that the high temperature can provide some activation energy from for some of the reactions. The theories involve ultraviolet light, the energy from ultraviolet light. So one of the issues that they have is that e- energy is required to make some of these reactions go and if you don't have that energy the reactions aren't going to go so you've got to have the assembly occur in some sort of region where there's this this source of energy temperature and or ultraviolet light why ultraviolet light in particular well ultraviolet light because it's a particularly high energy form of of light higher energy than visible light so there there's some of the conditions that they that they try to model. And then of course you have the problem of forming some, you know, primitive or basic building blocks for life.
0: Sounds great in theory, but have any of these things ever been proven, say, inside a lab
1: environment? One of the classic experiments that was performed back in the early 1950s was where they mixed some gases like ammonia and methane together. So ammonia is a source of nitrogen, methane is a source of carbon and zapped them with very high voltages, sort of of like you'd expect from lightning. And they did manage to produce compounds that were similar to the structure of compounds that are found in living organisms. And this was believed to be wow, okay, we're in the right direction. This shows us that it could possibly happen. And I think, you know, people have built on that. A couple of years ago, a paper was published by some researchers. I'm pretty sure they were at Harvard University. And they used about a 12-step process of synthesis, of chemical synthesis using high-grade, that's very purified chemicals, In a laboratory using very sophisticated equipment and they were able to synthesize some of the smaller building blocks that found in living systems and this resulted in a research review paper being published in the prestigious science journal nature by jack stossack professor of genetics at harvard university and essentially saying, well, wow, it looks like in the laboratory we're pretty close to producing the compounds for, you know, to make a, a living cell. We can see how this could happen. And of course, this has been hailed around the world as a, you know, a major breakthrough. And here we can see we're very close now to understanding how life first formed. But we need to look at that claim very carefully now Stothak is a geneticist, he's he's not a chemist. And one of the things that he did in his Nature article was he took the 10 or 12 step synthesis program process, which is a very complicated process. It would be very difficult for chemists to replicate in the laboratory. Be, you need know, quite experienced and gifted chemists to achieve that with top equipment. And that's why I was a world leading chemist with his team that achieved it. But Stossack, when he wrote it up, wrote it up as basically a three-step synthesis. So he, he greatly oversimplified the process. And also, there's a very interesting aspect with organic, the molecules that are involved with carbon. Now, carbon forms four bonds. And if you have four different molecular groups attached to those four bonds on carbon, which are pointing out then there are two ways that those molecules can be arranged one being the mirror image of the other and we call this right-handedness and left-handedness or chirality. and so if you can imagine you have your left hand and your right hand if you hold them together they both have five fingers and one is the mirror image of the other you can't put your right hand in a left-handed glove now This property of the fact of uh, mirror image orientation greatly affects the properties and the reactions of certain chemical reactions that are involved in biological systems. It involves it to the point that sometimes right-handed versions of a left-handed molecule can be quite toxic whereas the left-handed molecule is is non-toxic to life and vice versa, depending on the situation. So whenever we do chemical reactions just straight in the laboratory, we produce equal amounts of both right-handedness and left-handedness. And this is a very important problem that is not addressed in these attempts to understand the chemistry because it's only in living systems that we have chemical reactions occurring where only either the right-handed form or the left-handed form forms. So this is a very interesting, you know, stopping point there. There's two other major issues. Well, there's several major issues actually, but two other major issues. is And when we look at the chances of these molecules forming and we can do the probability and statistically from our mathematics understanding of the probability of chemical reactions the the basic molecules are so complex just even one molecule that it would never form by chance
0: Mm.
1: so it's statistically impossible but then what What happens is people say, oh, well, we've formed this molecule, this particular molecule, that chemical that can be used in building a cell. But what they don't realise is that in the simplest cell that we can imagine that would work, there are millions of identical molecules. So you don't have to form just one or two of these molecules. You've got to form millions of these identical molecules have to form all in the same spot and then they have to be of 20 or 30 different types well actually probably more than that about 50 different types of these long chain molecules have to form and then somehow these molecules have to assemble themselves and form a protective sheath so that very delicate chemical reactions can occur in a protected environment Right, And we know that for, the, for millions of molecules to assemble in a special sheath that would protect them from the environment at the same time as they form, then enclosing just the right chemicals inside for the chemical reactions to occur. Now, I've talked about there's about 50 of these really long-chain, types of long-chain molecules that we require millions of. But there are also about several hundred smaller molecules such as enzymes that are required to make the system work so all these have to come together in and and somehow assemble themselves and we know that's just impossible it just doesn't happen in liquids you know we've got the kinetic theory that send that says that these particles disperse when you pour a colored liquid into another clear liquid say you're working with a food dye or something like that you'll notice that it spreads out quite quickly when you're mixing liquids and you know with some thicker liquids you've got to stir them a bit to mix but leave them over time they, they mix they don't come together and form a clump so these molecules are going to naturally separate so again these laws are all mitigating against the formation of some structure. Right. But even if we did have the structure form, we then would just have a structure. How is it going to replicate?
0: Don't all living organisms have a molecule called DNA that starts the
1: process of replication? What happens is the DNA, in essence, is to simplify it, is replicated and it replicates in such a way that there's a little factory that, called a ribosome that can read the code that can then build the the new cell the the offspring
0: what is dna because it's it's a code right it's a code like the alphabet
1: so what this dna code is is a very long molecule and it's made up of four sort of chemical compounds that we call bases and these are abbreviated so a c t and g so you can remember them australian capital territory is good a c and t and g are the name or the abbreviations we give to the chemical names that constitute um, these compounds and so we have a little a little code system that is based on and you can imagine just to simplify it the letters a c t and g and these form a long chain just like you'd write a sentence right so if we write apple a double p l e if i was to write the dna code for an apple for memory i think it has about 700 million letters in the code Mm. right and so if we and if we go to a bacterium say like an e coli bacteria, a little single celled organism without a nucleus, it's about four million letters in the DNA code right for memory, I think it's something in in that order, and you know if I, don't hold me, but anyway it's a very, very large number of letters in the DNA code for that little a cell. So, that's a language that it, that code has to form. So, it's a very, very long molecule. It's a, it's a very, very long molecule. And that molecule, using those letters, writes out all the instructions to write that code, to, to build that cell. So, one of the things that we have to accept is that, okay, this structure forms, right? And so you've got to assemble all these millions of molecules of have to assemble into a structure that works. And at the same time, using chemical compounds that we call ACT and G, you have to write a code that describes that structure that has formed around it. Mm. And we can see that that's absolutely impossible it's never going to happen that you're going to write a code that matches the structure of that molecule around it now especially when you have a code that has like four million atoms in it or or at least hundreds of thousands of atoms in it i think the minimum code for life to exist in one of the simple bacteria they have. And again, I'm just going from memory, it's about 670,000 letters in the code. So it's it's huge. And that code, all those molecules, that extremely long chain molecule made up of, as I said, 670,000 molecular components joined together in this helix structure this sort of long spring coil structure has to form that actually describes what these random processes have built around it so we can see that's absolutely impossible you know the chance of that happening (coughs) is beyond impossible you know but even if that happened the code would be useless because You also have to have a code reader. Having a code doesn't work. So, if I spelt out the word to you, Z I V I S, most people listening to this program would not know what that means. Do you know what that means? No. Right. Now, my best friend in primary school knew what that meant. It means fish in Latvian. Okay. But unless you have, unless your brain has been programmed to read Latvian, you're not going to know what it is. So, again, our brain is our code reader, and we use, in Australia, the English language as the code. Uh-huh. Uh, well, things are written using a 26-letter alphabet, and and when we write apple, that is code, and, it's, and in our mind, we can picture an apple. We write A-double-P-L-E. Yeah. But the other thing is, too, that code, A-double-P-L-E, doesn't look anything like an apple. Mm. It's a code. It has to be interpreted in our mind. In our mind, we can picture an apple. Or if it was French, we'd write POM, P-O-M-M-E, and we would picture in our mind an apple. And so, again, if somebody didn't know French, they wouldn't know what that word was. And so these are codes or a language that represents something, and it requires a code reader, and it's the same. DNA is a language. DNA is this language that uses only those four letters to write out and create something. And that that DNA code describes all the mechanisms in the cell, everything that is needed.
0: But just like the alphabet is a code, like DNA, the code needs something that will be able to read and interpret it, which in the case of the alphabet is
1: humans, right? That code is useless unless there is a machine that can read that code and then build the components of the new cell; otherwise, the cell can't reproduce. Mm. And that molecule that does that is called a ribosome. Mm. That machine that does that is called a ribosome. Now, ribosome is an extremely complex molecular machine with over three hundred thousand atoms. So, what people that don't believe in supernatural creation have to believe that somehow These raw atoms combined over 300,000 of them in such a way that they formed the code reader for the DNA molecule. So a specific code reader to read that code for the DNA molecule. Mm -hmm. And again, we know that isn't just going to happen because the chemical reactions required to build the structure of a ribosome just don't occur in nature. Mm. they don't happen and so without a code reader dna is useless and the scientists that worked out the structure of the ribosome and we still don't understand fully the chemistry or the chemistry of the ribosome they were awarded the nobel prize in chemistry in 2009 Mm. so it's only fairly recent that we have even understood the molecular structure let alone trying to understand the molecular mechanism now just say and it is absolutely impossible look there are so many things that say that it's absolutely impossible for life to form in some pond somewhere by chance on the surface of the earth or anywhere in the universe by chance on some planet somewhere or star or wherever you want it to have in dust particle and outer space wherever you want to put it it's absolutely impossible to occur, life as we know it on Earth, to form because of the complexity and the restraints of the chemistry involved. Our life as we know it is based on carbon chemistry, which has uh, four bonds and certain bond energies. The other components, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and then minor minerals, they all have certain chemical energies and certain bond patterns. And so we understand the chemistry of how these elements operate, how they can form and combine and form compounds. And on the basis of that knowledge, we can say it's absolutely impossible for the chemistry required to form a living cell to form by chance.
0: But then if the theory is correct, that doesn't explain how living intelligent beings are
1: formed. Even if it did somehow, it would be just dead molecules. It Mm. wouldn't be alive. And that's the further burden. You can make all these chemical molecules, but how can you make them alive? Mm. If we take, for example, an E. coli cell, that's a, a very simple bacteria, as I said, doesn't have a nucleus, very simple, a relatively simple code. If we just take this little molecule, that this little cell, and we just put a tiny little drop of toluene, that's a, an organic chemical, on the outside of the membrane, the cell dies and the reason why it dies is we actually make a little hole in that membrane that upsets its energy chemistry and the cell reactions go to equilibrium and the cell dies Hmm. now what happens for something to be alive and in the simplest cell you have several hundred chemical reactions have to be out of balance so if you take some a piece of zinc at high school you might remember you've you've taken a piece of zinc or maybe magnesium ribbon and you put some hydrochloric acid on it yeah. and it will bubble away and it will produce hydrogen gas will be given off.
0: My high school chemistry teacher actually once took a large block of magnesium, not just a ribbon, chucked it in some water, which caused a mini explosion and filled the lab with hydrogen gas. Can you tell me a bit more about that
1: process? So the formula for hydrochloric acid is HCl, a hydrogen atom with a chlorine atom. Yeah. And what happens is that the metal zinc or uh, magnesium is above hydrogen in the electrochemical series. So there's a chemical theory that says an element higher in the electrochemical series will displace an element below it in a chemical reaction. And so hydrogen is below these metals. And so what happens is the acid reacts and instead of having hydrogen chloride, we have hydrogen gas given off as the molecules of hydrogen and the element zinc is replaced and becomes zinc chloride. So the zinc now bonds with the chlorine and forms zinc chloride, or the magnesium bonds and forms magnesium chloride. So we started with an element and it replaced the hydrogen and hydrogen returns to being an element, but a gaseous element. And eventually that reaction stops because all the zinc is used up If there's excess acid, we usually have excess acid, and the reaction stops because there's no more zinc to make the reaction go. So we say the reaction has reached equilibrium. Right. Or if we had excess zinc when we ran out of hydrochloric acid, the reaction would stop. Mm. So if you want that reaction to keep going all the time, you have to keep on putting in more zinc, and you have to keep on putting in more hydrochloric acid. Otherwise, when it reaches equilibrium, it will stop. And it's the same for living systems. If you want something to be alive and moving, there are a whole lot of chemical reactions that have to be going, operating. What they do is one chemical reaction, say A reacts with B to form C, and C then reacts with D to form E. And E then reacts with F to form G and so on. And eventually, you know, Z reacts with W to form A, Mm. the starting material. So you see you've got a loop. And what happens is that the concentrations have to be just right as well. In other words, if the concentration isn't right, the reaction might go too fast or too slow. For example, if you have really concentrated hydrochloric acid and you drop some finely ground magnesium powder into the acid, it'll just go. Whoosh, mm. You'll have a, an explosion on your hands. Whereas if you put in some, a big piece of ribbon or a block of magnesium, it'll go much more slowly. So again, concentration is very important as well. So in all these biochemical reactions, they have to be in a state of disequilibrium by just the right amount, to produce the just the right concentration of the next chemical for the next reaction to go so that it produces just the right concentration for the next reaction to go and you have to have that out of balance just right for hundreds of chemical reactions for the cell to be alive. Right. And we see for that to start up is absolutely impossible and we see there's you know, under our current knowledge of chemistry, there's no way we could ever do that in a lab. What's, what are the and, levels
0: of probability that we're talking about here? Like one in millions and millions and millions?
1: Look, the probability of even just one of these long-chain molecules forming would be less than... Just imagine, just think of how many atoms there must be in the universe. Now, when you go down to the beach and you look on the sand, you can see how many grains of sand. You scoop up a handful of sand, right? Mm -hmm. Just in the palm of your hand, one hand, you try and count all the grains of sand there, Mm. right?
0: It's absolutely impossible to quantify.
1: Then think of how much sand is on that beach. Yeah. And then think of how much sand is on all the beaches in the world and lakes and rivers and everything. Yeah. And then think, wow, that's a really big number, right? Or just imagine that you were thinking about all the atoms that make up that sand. Now, those atoms are so small, we can't even see them. Yeah. Right. So then just imagine how many atoms there would be in all the stars in the universe. Right. Right. Just imagine. How big that number is, if you looked at all the atoms that are in all the stars and you see the pictures, you know, there's billions of stars out there and the stars are huge, like bigger than our sun. And so there's, you know, even many more atoms than there are on our earth, right? It blows your mind just to think about how big that number is. Well, just imagine that there were as many universes as there are atoms in the universe. Uh Mm-hmm. That's a huge number and just imagine all those atoms. Now, mathematically, the chances of just the right chemical compounds forming for a cell is less than finding one little red dot atom in first go in as many atoms as there are universes of atoms. Wow. If you can imagine, out of all the atoms, if there are as many universes as there are atoms in the universe, and finding that first scale. And that would be just one of the proteins required forming by chance chemical reactions, let alone the 50 or so others, and let alone all the other enzymes. So when we look at the probability of these reactions somehow occurring by chance, the the numbers are bigger than astronomical numbers. That's when we do the maths. And, you know, that's the same way we calculate probability just in the normal systems. So when we look at these systems, not only are they scientifically impossible to occur in terms of mathematics and, you know, chance reactions, not only do the chemical reactions themselves required not occur in nature, we can only, they only occur in, Living systems that require enzymes with special chemicals that change the activation energy so that a reaction will go.
0: What's activation energy? Is that sort of like a starter motor in an
1: engine? To explain activation energy, it's sort of like you can have a container of petrol sitting in your garage and it's quite safe. But you bring a spark near that petrol in air or a flame and you the petrol can suddenly catch on fire Mm. and burn very rapidly and what happens is that that spark or flame provides the activation energy to start the reaction going right and it's the same thing in biological systems they can sit there The a lot of reactions require energy to be started in one way or another what we call activation energy and so we know that in just normal environment these reactions won't go and that's why science are trying to figure out some way that they can use heat from a hot volcanic vent or energy from ultraviolet light but it doesn't work they they don't provide the energy a matter of fact Yeah, ultraviolet light might stimulate one reaction, but it'll also break down other molecules. Ultraviolet light breaks down polymer molecules. That's why your plastics break down in, you know, left out in your environment and this sort of thing. These other plastics along polymer molecules. So all the chemistry that we study, the evidence is against cells forming by themselves, Mm -hmm. living organisms forming by themselves from every way we can look at it. It's absolutely impossible. And that's why, to me, living systems are overwhelming evidence of a supernatural creator, an amazing superintelligence. There's, there's just, you know, so, so much evidence now as we understand living organisms and the molecular machines. You know, plants have an amazing molecular machine in them, photosystem too that, you know, Use the sunlight to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, release the oxygen and combine the hydrogen with carbon dioxide to form carbohydrates, sugars, cellulose and so forth. An amazing machine that really provides the food systems for every living thing mm. on Earth. And again, that's a molecular machine. We've only just relatively recently understood its molecular structure to a degree. We still don't know exactly how the water molecules are bonded. What happens is this little machine traps two water molecules in the plant and it carries the energy of sunlight energy trapped by the chlorophyll cells, converts that into energy and zaps the water and splits it, releases the oxygen so that we have oxygen to breathe, takes that active hydrogen and combines it with carbon dioxide that it has absorbed into the leaf of the plant and from that produces all these compounds, synthesizes these compounds, the sugars and carbohydrates. And our living systems are full of these amazing machines. Evolutionists have to believe that these machines rose by chance, these molecular machines, and yet we know the chemical reactions to form them are very difficult. I mean... It's very difficult for us as scientists, with all our knowledge and all our chemical equipment in the laboratories, in the best laboratories, to synthesize and make these compounds.
0: And that just comes back to the same question again. Let's say the right circumstances cropped up for life to come into being. That doesn't explain how we humans, as living, breathing beings with a consciousness, is possible.
1: The evolutionary process is dealing with molecules, inert molecules. When does an inert molecule become conscious? Right. It's very interesting. One of the guys that uh, won the Nobel Prize for Physiology one year, and he he was addressing a conference, and he said, you know, one of the things that amazes me most is how with my mind I can move my little finger. Mm. And the reason for saying this is, you know, when you think about it, can you weigh your brain? Does your brain have mass? Yes, it does. You can weigh your brain. You know, if hopefully after you were dead, somebody could cut it out, put it on a balance and weigh your brain. They could then squash it into a measuring cylinder and measure its volume. And so we can our, our brain is made of matter. But what about your thoughts? You can't weigh your thoughts. You can't put your thoughts on a balance mm. and weigh them. You can't put your thoughts into a measuring cylinder. But when you think about it, if I asked you move your little finger. You make a decision in your mind am i going to move my little finger no i'm not going to do what he says i don't have to do what he says but if you do choose to move your little finger say yeah i'll move my little finger it's your thoughts your non-material thoughts right that have affected electrical voltages in your brain so your thoughts have actually affected matter or material things electrical voltages which have affected nerves which have moved muscles and And so moved tendons and muscles and and moved your little finger. And so this is, to me, this again just illustrates the Bible talks about how God spoke the world into existence. It was God's thoughts and God is spirit. He's non-material. He's outside this material universe. And to me, it just makes so much sense that a non-material entity, not limited by space and time in this universe, but an intelligence, thoughts, thought these systems out. He designed, he was able to create and made these systems, and they became a reality. This hypothesis
0: that you're dealing with, which is the explanation that life started from a supernatural source. Now, yes. it's not just an assumption that you're talking about there that oh, if it, it's so improbable that it could be the, the result of these theories that you mentioned, so it must be a creator God, it's not just an assumption that it must be a creator God. There's evidence for that as well in written text, isn't there?
1: Well, the Bible describes the creation account, and to me it makes a lot of sense. Now, sometimes people uh, say, oh, you know, six days, you know, it's got to be longer than that, because we've been inculcated with this idea of millions of years. But, you know, when you think about it, It's so realistic. It fits the picture because on the second day, we have God created the atmosphere, the firmament, right, in which he put, you know, the oxygen, nitrogen, and presumably the other gases, carbon dioxide, and so forth. And remember, then uh, the dry land appears on the third day and plants form. And it's interesting how plants then take this carbon dioxide And they, as I explained just recently, they they produce all this food. And then we have, but the plants required, in order to do that, they required sunlight. And it's interesting, on the fourth day, the sun and the moon are created Mm. And, and give the seasons. The moon provides this gravitational attraction which, you know, you know, changes the movement of the water on the earth. has all this cleansing effect and everything. And then we have the, the fish and insects and birds formed. And then on the sixth day, we have the mammals and the bigger animals and man formed. And, and it fits from an ecological picture too as well because, and, and this is one of the challenges in the evolutionary chain in that insects appear fully formed in the record. But not at the same time as flowering plants, and yet you you need insects generally to pollinate flowering plants. Mm. Flying insects, and and again, the flowering plants just appear in the you know fossil record. Insect flight is extremely complex and would require a massive amount of new code, new information to encode for the systems required for insect flight, and it just suddenly appears in in the uh, fossil record. So we. It more fits the the flood account in the Bible that you know things wiped out, but it's interesting that just recently I watched a debate between John Lennox, who is emeritus professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, and Professor Peter Atkins, who is emeritus professor of chemistry at Oxford University, and they were debating. The existence of God, and of course, you can look this up on on uh, YouTube and watch the debate. But it was very interesting. At the end of the debate, Professor Atkins is is a, a very firm atheist, and of course, Professor Lennox is a is a very strong Christian, Bible believing Christian. And the the debate adjudicator at the end asked Professor Atkins. He said, "Look, Professor Atkins, is there any evidence?" that would persuade you to believe in God, the existence of God? And he said, no, nothing. Nothing would persuade me to believe in the existence of God. And he then turned to Professor Lennox and he said, Professor Lennox, is there any evidence that would persuade you to give up your belief in God, in Christianity? And he said, yes, there is. I thought, wow, this is interesting, and also it, it seems a more reasonable answer. And so,
0: this sounds very similar to a podcast I did with Dr. Sven Erstring recently about where did the universe come from, because he also mentioned how the scientific community has rules in place that prevent exploring whether God intervened and a miracle did happen.
1: The adjudicator was surprised and said, "Well, well, what is that?" And he said, "If you could prove to me that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not occur." And I thought about that. That's the fundamental basis of Christianity. And, but it's also very powerful evidence for the existence of the supernatural. Mm. And when we look at the evidence, and I did quite a bit of research following that, into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And the evidence is so powerful mm. and overwhelming. And that's the beauty of Christianity. Christianity is a faith that worships a living God, the God who created our amazing universe and the stars and then came and lived among us in a very humble way, so it wasn't so obvious, but taught the way we should live and then died so that we can be forgiven. What, As I look at it, this is like a game of chess between two brilliant chess masters And it's between Christ and Satan. And we see that it was the temptation was an amazing trap. Because what happened was, as as Eve was tempted, she was told, well, no, you know, if you, God said, look, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the, the, if you eat of that, you will surely die. And that's because God had a plan ultimately to rid the universe of evil and evil had begun. Uh. at that particular stage. And by God dying on the cross in our place, he, you know, he fulfilled that requirement. He was a substitute for us, and he filled that requirement that you cannot have for forgiveness of sin unless there is death.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, to me, it's an amazing picture that God himself came and died because now he's died in our place, and he is now free to forgive us for our sins. And our wrongdoings the evil things that we've done in our lives, the bad things we've done in our lives. And Satan can't accuse him that no one died for our sins. God has proved that. So God is now free to forgive us. And this is the beautiful good news. And it was confirmed by Jesus' resurrection that he really was God. He rose again. And this is the amazing story that must go out to the world because the world isn't going to go on you know, that much longer. We know that God is going to come and put a hand, you know, the human population problem. We've got the human environment problem that even David Atterborough, an evolutionist, is highlighting these days, a major problem where we've got so much pollution in the environment. Now we're impacting essential feedback mechanisms that are required to keep the ecological systems on our planet functioning. Then I found my experience was when I accepted Jesus as my Savior back in 1971, I began to change. It didn't happen overnight, but my preferences began to change. The way I thought, the way I viewed other people, the way I viewed myself began to change. And I began to become a much nicer person. Mm. And my faith increased. And as I said through, you know, I am so passionate about God now because I know he's real. I can see how he has led in my life, how he has blessed me, how he's opened opportunities for me and also for my family. And I've seen that in the lives of other people, too, as they have stepped out and accepted Jesus as their saviour. And I've had the privilege to meet so many other Christian scientists, too, around the world as I've been writing my books, like In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation, The God Factor, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in God. These books, they've had similar experiences of answers to prayer, God's leading in their lives. And we because we know, I know that God is real. This is something that to me is just so important to get that message out to people, to step out, to go and buy a Bible like I did and start going to church and get the message and and meet other people that have had their lives changed too. And the thing is, we have a hope. God says that he's going to create a a system, create again, where it won't be running down. Mm. And, And that's a very, very positive hope to have. And when I see that so much of the Bible fits what we observe in terms of human behavior, the environment, and so forth, sure, it's not a science textbook, but that doesn't mean that it isn't true, that it isn't correct in what it's talking about, that it isn't real history. And I believe the evidence that it's real history is very, very strong.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's incredible evidence that you... You shared there not even just about how improbable it is that life came as a result of those theories that we mentioned earlier that stem from an evolutionary mindset but also the incredible evidence there is in favor of a creative god. John, thank you so much for for joining us this week on science radio. I really appreciate that you've you've managed to condense what 's a very difficult t- topic down into a a practical format so I really appreciate you joining us on Signs of the Times this week. And again, if you'd like to read John's article, it's now live on our website, which is signsofthetimes.org.au. But yeah, again, thank you so much, John, for joining us this week.
1: Thanks for the opportunity, Daniel. God bless. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand. This is an Adventist Media podcast.